It's the largest and most elegant house in town, a Queen Anne Victorian, proud and graceful. It's still got the original leaded glass windows a century later, a deep porch that curves around two sides. Standing out front, looking to the left of the steps to the front door, you can see a round tower rise to an elegant point, a turret. Who wouldn't want a turret? 2 a.m., the village of Oregon in Wisconsin. A few thousand people on the edge of a small highway. A few miles of streets like this one. The kind of place where people take pride in keeping the sidewalks shoveled neat from snow. And it's cold. The calendar says March, but the weather says January. A lone car whizzing by. There won't be another one for a while. It's probably some kids sneaking home after a night partying in Madison. The big city. This is a small town. But it's a late night for someone moving through that big, elegant house. The light burning in the den snaps off. A shadow passes the windows, heading up the stairwell. You can see more than one person upstairs. Then there's movement in the master bedroom. Voices. Is he alive? I don't know. Is the perpetrator still there? I don't know. But she did know. That's Vern's niece, Dorothy Marsick. And decades later, she wasn't satisfied with the official explanation for what happened that night. That woman was Suzanne Stordach. She was married to my Uncle Vern, and he was murdered in the most elegant mansion in Oregon, Wisconsin. March 1st, 1970. A half a century ago. Well, here's how Dorothy wrote about it. A single gunshot sound echoed through the ten-below-zero air outside. Several lights immediately switched on in nearby houses. Dressed in a pink robe, a short, frail woman with loosely tied, dyed blonde hair stood in the bedroom with her back to the door. She was clutching a rotary phone, her thin fingers sweeping the dial clockwise again and again. I would say she was... She was a little bit quite different and probably a little bit unhinged. Yeah, sort of a magic about her, I guess, that seemed to entice them. Oh, she was brilliant. Totally, truly brilliant lady. And, you know, sometimes brilliant people, as the ones that I have known, don't have a personality. Some of them don't. Some do. And, uh, we would talk. I liked her a lot because we were in the same field, and he was talking about her ideas for criminal justice and uh, uh, how the guards, you know, she thought of herself as a smart person, uh, you know, class person. Well, it's it certainly, she had people waiting on her hand and foot. Years later, I still wanted to understand why my uncle died and who Suzanne really was. I'm Molly Peterson. Welcome to Manslaughter. This is manslaughter. And this next part is hard to hear, hard to look at. Suzanne's call brought the police to that big, beautiful house. And when they went upstairs, Vern Stordock's body was slumped on the floor next to the bed. Much of his head was gone, blown off. Blood, brains, and tissue were everywhere, splattered across the walls and floor. 
staining the purple bedspread, stuck to the floral wallpaper. Stark and undeniable violence. Police reports noted it, visible on the freshly washed underwear and towels in a laundry basket some feet away. One gunshot from a high-powered rifle ended the life of a decorated war veteran and a career law enforcement officer, Laverne Gerald Stordock, Vern, to family and friends. Vern's brutal murder shocked a town, shocked this whole part of Wisconsin, really. And the wild part of the story was the identity of the killer, because it was the same woman who made the call, his wife, Suzanne. And actually, she told police she did it. Full confession, first-degree murder. Rarely happens, but here, it happened. And Vern, he was a police officer, a respected member of the community. His death made headlines. So you might think, murder, murder. A cop confessed. Expert defense attorney Christine Funk says that's the kind of thing that has consequences. If you kill a super nice guy who's a member of law enforcement because you were mad at him. You don't need a law degree to know that's not going to get you out of it. They threw the book at her. They locked her up for life. Nobody gets away with something like that, right? Well, no. That's not what happened. By 1971, Suzanne Stordock was a free woman. See, Vern Stordock was a senior official in the state government. So newspapers paid attention. Fourteen of them carried stories of his murder. In Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota, not just in the days after, for weeks, for months, for the next few years. But nothing came of that. There was no sensational murder trial where a jury punished Suzanne for a brutal crime. Instead, the news cycle diminished into a trickle of procedural updates. Suzanne said she did it. There were hearing delays. A new judge, the lead prosecutor, the district attorney himself, handed off the case to a rookie prosecutor to go on an army retreat. Eventually, the charges were reduced from first-degree murder to manslaughter. Manslaughter? Just the unintentional killing of another person. No intent, no motive, no murder. And that all happened because of a really wild chain of events. Here's criminal defense attorney Christine Funk again. So at the end of the day, the legal gymnastics come down to sort of a perfect storm. Suzanne Stordock slept just three nights in jail. She spent 11 months in a mental health facility. Then she got married. Again. Vern was Suzanne's fourth husband. She buried five of them in the end. More about those guys later. By November of 1971, Suzanne was a free woman. She pretty quickly cashed in on his life insurance policy, despite being the direct cause of his lack of life. For Suzanne, life without Vern was good. She finished her college degree, got four degrees altogether, in fact. That last husband she called the Keeper. She left Vern in Oregon, Wisconsin behind. Dorothy Marsick couldn't do that. She was haunted by her uncle Vern's death. Yeah, I've had people in my family die before. But it's different when somebody's murdered. You don't get over it. You just don't recover. Well, Vern, he was solid and stable. He was there for me. He took me under his wing when I was in Madison in college. He used to pick me up every other weekend at my dorm and take me to Oregon. He'd pick me up, drive me out to Oregon, and we'd have dinner. Sometimes, if it was warm out, 
there'd be barbecues in the back. And I think because my mother had raised him and she was really close to him, that I became a stand-in for him for his own daughter, Shannon, who was estranged after the Suzanne affair. He was my father figure. He was more of a father to me than my own father. And so when he was taken away so brutally, that night, my father was gone. The father figure she found in Vern was a huge improvement over the father she was born with. And Dorothy much preferred the warm memories she made while visiting Vern's house to what she knew in her childhood home. Yeah, I felt terror a lot. I was terrorized by my father, who could be so sweet and charming, but then in a moment go from Jekyll to Hyde and be this cruel monster. Like when my mother would say she was going to pick me up, I'd be waiting, 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 and wonder which bar she was in. But Vernie, he was there when he said he was going to be. When he said, I'm going to pick you up at 5 o'clock at your dorm, he was there. Yeah, Vern was concerned about my well-being, unlike my own father, who was a compulsive gambler and used my mother as a punching bag. And then when she got too bloody, he'd start at my brother's. Even when I lived in Milwaukee for a year, I had dropped out of college and had bought some furniture for an apartment from these guys from a newspaper ad. I paid the money and kept calling them. They never delivered anything. So I called my uncle. The next day, that furniture and appliances were in the apartment. So I called him. Remember, this was a guy who dealt with the mob. I said, Uncle Vernie, what did you say to them? He replied, I made an offer they couldn't refuse. You know, he just took care of things. He fixed problems. This was remarkable to Dorothy. Unprecedented, basically because the family history she and Vern shared was one of struggle. Well, my grandmother came to the United States when she was 15 with $20 in her pocket. She got a job as a maid, and then she met my grandfather. They fell in love. They got married, but he became an alcoholic. By that time, she had five kids, so she got fed up and threw him out. So during the Depression, she had to support five children by herself. She worked as a cook at Beloit College and used to bring home scraps of food for them to eat. They each had one outfit, which he would wash every night and iron in the morning. None of them went to college. In fact, my grandmother didn't graduate from high school. My mother didn't graduate from high school. None of my grandma's kids went to college at all. Nobody in that family got to go to college, including Vern. But Vern did see a way out. As soon as he could on his 17th birthday in 1943, he enlisted in the Navy. It was World War II. And while dodging Japanese bullets in the Pacific, Vern discovered his calling. He liked keeping order in society. So much so that after the war, he returned to his native Wisconsin and joined the Beloit Police Department. But the Navy called him back into service late in 1950 for the Korean conflict. Dorothy's uncle Vern was sent to Japan and served in the Okinawa Shore Patrol, doing undercover work to break up narcotics rings. By narcotics rings, we're talking about the Japanese mob, the Yakuza, the tattooed gangsters who cut off their own fingers when they mess up. Vern Stordak cut his police teeth dealing with the deadliest criminals on the planet. Then he came back to Wisconsin, which is why when he returned to being a cop in Beloit, he was quickly promoted, rising to the rank of captain, a job he kept for over a decade. He retired as chief of officers in 1962. But he was still young. His career was far from over. He got hired at the Wisconsin Attorney General's Office and later as an investigator for the Wisconsin State Medical Examiner's Board. 
And he was so high profile, a public guy. Uncle Vernie was the first president of the Oregon Optimist Club, kind of like the Elks Lodge. He even created and hosted a radio show. Wait, what? Yeah, Vern had a creative side. In the early 60s, he was host of this weekend radio program, The Jerry Shannon Show. It was a combination of his middle name, Gerald, and his only daughter's name, Shannon. He played top 40 hits just like this one. This is Jerry Shannon on a hot, muggy July morning in downtown Beloit. And you were listening to Please Help Me, I'm What I remember about him, you know, others in my family do too, was his laugh. He was so quick with a joke. What I can remember is that he was um, always laughing, um, very caring. He was my godfather. Um, but I can just remember him as loving and caring. Um, I don't think I ever remember him raising his voice. Vern's daughter, my cousin Shannon, she remembers a great childhood. He was he was a joker. He liked to, he liked to have fun. <laughs> we have water fights in the summer. I remember we would uh, we each have an end of a garden hose and we'd run to go run into the house with the garden hose. My mother just, you know, okay. And we have water Just like everyone old enough to remember where they were when 9-11 happened, I remember the day my uncle died. Dorothy was a 20-year-old young woman, a junior at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, visiting her grandmother in Beloit for the weekend. And Sunday morning around 5.30, there was a knock at the door. Her mother and uncle were there. She wrote about it in her book. Think back to that day, I remember my tall mother being dressed in her church clothes and hat, But now I realize how memory can cloud reality. Because that probably didn't happen. Think about it. Her mother and uncle had come 60 miles over icy roads to get there. It was ridiculously early. Not the time of day for elegance. So a lot of what Dorothy writes, she's putting together from memories of that time. My mother must have been wearing something more like her brown slacks, worn out at the knees, navy wool overcoat, which was two sizes too big because she had recently lost weight and her beige knit scarf. It was like a dream, a bad one. Dorothy probably stumbled out of bed, groggy and cold, hugging her arms tight against her body as she went to the front door. Dorothy's grandmother was up. Everyone came inside to the kitchen. There was a round maple table with a red gingham oilcloth on it. Four chairs set around it, one for Dorothy, for her mother, her uncle. Her grandmother sat down too. Dorothy says you could see she was getting prepared. She knew bad news was coming. My mother said it first. She blurted out, Fernie's gone. And then she let go with a gush of tears. My uncle was crying too, a hanky to his eyes. I don't think I'd ever seen him cry before. He was a retired army sergeant. He'd traveled the world working on important international assignments. Her grandmother didn't move. She was... Immobile, still and silent, in a robin blue robe and slippers, her white hair matted down from sleep. She sat there, staring out through the kitchen door into space. Dorothy's grandmother was 77 years old. Woven through almost all of those years of life were hard losses. She had left Norway at age 15 to make a new life in America and had never seen her own mother again. Her father had died before she was born. Her husband had died, a grandson. Two of her three children were already dead. Now, Vern was the third of her children to die before her. 
And apart from Vern, she was the only member of her family that Dorothy could always depend on. My Uncle Donald stopped crying long enough to tell us what happened. Vernie and Sue were out drinking. Sue. Susie. Suzanne. Vern's wife. That tramp, as my grandmother used to call her. Vern's family said that his downfall began when he met Suzanne, which happened in a bar. So, in some ways, it wasn't surprising that Suzanne and Vern spent their final hours together in one. The Capitol Bar in Madison was an after-work place for a drink. A little insulation against a cold day. We think Suzanne and Vern met in January 1962. Back then, Suzanne was married to a guy named Irv Gast. He couldn't hold a job. So his father was always bailing him out of trouble. The dad had money. He owned a dry-cleaning business. But Suzanne told people her husband wasn't much of a provider. This was when she met Vern. 36, charming, ambitious, confident. A guy who had taken on the Yakuza and the mob and was ready for his next big thing. And here's the thing. Vern was already married, too. Exactly when Suzanne and Vern met is a bit of a mystery. Suzanne told people in her life that Vern Stordock was going to help her investigate her current husband. When I started looking into this, a lot of people I talked to said the same thing. They said my uncle became obsessed with this woman he met in a bar, Sue. He was still married to my Aunt Janelle. She was a real homemaker, sweet, warm, His daughter, Shannon, was older than me, but I remember him doting on her. This new woman always had men circling around. By her own account, she had been with many of them. As a lawman, Vern was a big fish in the small pond of Beloit. Before long, he would be selected to be part of an elite group of investigators for a new division under the Wisconsin Attorney General's office. Vern was on his way up. Irv was on his way down. And Suzanne? was a climber. I think she saw my Uncle Vernie as a ladder. And after they got together, Suzanne did finally appear in the Wisconsin Society pages. News of relatives visiting, or dinner parties, or daughter's overseas trip? I found them all. Society pages in Madison weren't huge, but they did track Suzanne and Vern. Here's just a few of the newspaper headlines. Laverne Stordock's vacation in Nevada. Stordock's have guests. Delbert Brandon's guests of Stordock's. Donna Briggs is fetid. As his relationship with Suzanne deepened, Dorothy says the tall, handsome man with a crew cut who she knew disappeared. What she remembers, what his friends and family do too, Vern became wan and pudgy. He started to drink more. He and Suzanne were a match with alcohol. It, it was like he was in a drug stupor. Maybe the aliens had come and replaced my Uncle Vernie with a pod person. He changed. When she met Suzanne for the first time, Dorothy was just 14. She saw what was going on, but she didn't really understand it. No, I really didn't understand what was going on with their affair. And I could never have predicted Vernie's obsession would end in his murder one dark, cold night seven years later. 
When Suzanne met Vern, she had one current husband, two ex-husbands, and three children, one from each of those marriages. It was complicated. Dorothy's family felt that Suzanne stole Vern. And Shannon, Vern's only daughter, she felt betrayed. She knew what she was doing every single step of the way. I believe she saw this nice-looking guy, figured out who he was, and thought, man, he's good-looking. He'd look good. I'd sure look good on his arm. And she went out of her way to get him. After she confessed, Suzanne had to go before a judge on the matter of killing Vern. But here's the thing. It wasn't much of a court case. Kind of open and shut in the end. From the beginning, though, the way things went down didn't sit right with some people, including Dorothy. Dorothy knew her uncle as a man who fought his way out of poverty, a reliable source of support for her in a messy family, who took on organized crime. Then he ended up dead at the hands of a 98-pound woman. And yeah, Dorothy has an opinion on that. I sure do. I didn't realize until a few years ago that Suzanne possessed the mind and instincts of a cold-blooded killer. She got away with it, and she got to keep living. My uncle did not. One shot. It's easy to see how, for Dorothy, the world turned on that one shot. On that cold Wisconsin night. That night, after that one shot rang out, Suzanne made a lot of phone calls. To the police dispatcher, she seemed confused. Is the perpetrator still there? I don't know. But the very first call she made was to the sheriff of Dane County, Sheriff Jack Leslie. He said in court that she called him around 2.20 in the morning, at home. I let my wife answer the telephone. She said it was for me. And a female was on the other end of the line, and she told me she was Mrs. Stordock and that she just shot her husband. What happened next, sir? I asked her to repeat what she said, and she said she just shot Vern and needed the police. And I asked her if Vern was dead, and she said, I don't know. And I said, we'll be right out, and I proceeded out of the house. Sheriff Leslie, do you know Mrs. Suzanne B. Stordock? Yes, I do. How long have you known her? Approximately three or four years. And could you identify or state whether or not you could identify the voice at the end of the line at the time you received the call? Well, I believed it to be Mrs. Stordock. Had you heard her voice in the past? I have been introduced to her before, yes. It's really fascinating to me that she called the home of the sheriff to announce that she'd shot her husband. Christine Funk is an expert criminal defense lawyer. I don't know what sort of relationship you have with your sheriff, right? I don't have my sheriff's home number. According to police reports, Sheriff Leslie had known Vern for 15 years. Suzanne, not so long. But she still got the VIP treatment that night at the county building. The sheriff let her sit in his private office. Dorothy and others have wondered whether Suzanne had a personal relationship with Sheriff Leslie. So Dorothy asked the criminal defense lawyer, Christine Funk. It does suggest a relationship of some kind. I've represented about two dozen people charged with murder in some degree or another over the course of my career, and none of them called the sheriff at home. 
When the police came to the house, Suzanne suddenly had nothing to say about shooting Vern. Instead, she called family, Vern's relatives, and hers to let them know that Vern had been shot. A sister-in-law in Waukesha, a brother-in-law in Pewaukee, her daughter in New York, her brother. It's Susie. Vern is dead. Vern has been shot. Someone has shot Vern. Suzanne pled not guilty by reason of insanity. In less than a year, and with a final hearing, the court accepted her plea. For Vern's daughter, Shannon, it still stings. She got out of jail so fast. You know, I mean, okay, so she has this psychotic breakdown. She goes and she gets out. And then she collects his life insurance. What, what do I think about the person that broke up my, my parents' marriage? The person that got me cut out of my father's will? The person that ended up killing him? The person that, that got his life insurance? What do I think about her? I hope she burns in f***ing hell. When Suzanne Stordach pled not guilty by reason of insanity, that was effectively an excuse. She told a court she wasn't responsible for her actions. The idea that Suzanne had a mental disorder originated in records with her personal attorney and family doctor, a doctor with no psychiatric training. And probably the two of them laid the legal groundwork for that the night of the murder. Nothing in the police reports reveals anything out of the ordinary, though. In early morning, when Suzanne got to jail, Sheriff Leslie just said she seemed a little disheveled. Officers on scene, six of them, described Suzanne with these words. Presentable, polite, calm, rational, cooperative, calm and collected, appeared to be normal, complete control of herself. And nothing in police records suggests a break with reality. Before the shooting, nobody who saw Suzanne and Vern on Saturday night at a bowling alley and two bars reported any odd behavior. One couple even came into that grand house around an hour before the cops did. Suzanne offered them a nightcap and showed them antiques. Yet just moments after Suzanne was talking to them about refinished chairs, Vern was dead, and her legal team blamed that on a psychotic break. Later, an assistant district attorney named Victor Musalem told the court that Suzanne's conversations with police officers the night of the murder showed that she had been acting strangely, in a trance-like state. And nobody seems to have made him prove that. That night, Suzanne did something shrewd. All those phone calls she made, one of the people she called was her lawyer, a guy named Ken Orchard. She had tried to call her lawyer first at her house under the watchful eye of cops. No answer. Later, she called him from the privacy and comfort of Sheriff Leslie's office. She kept getting a busy signal. Remember, this is a woman who confessed to Sheriff Leslie of murdering a career law enforcement officer. The sheriff had known Vern for 15 years, Suzanne a lot less time. And does he toss her in a cell? No. He lets her sit comfortably in his office with seemingly unlimited access to his phone. Suzanne, while she made those calls, also said she would not be making any more statements without her attorney present. She clearly understood her right to remain silent. But while she was sitting there, Suzanne eventually connected with her lawyer. 
and Ken Orchard headed to the sheriff's office as quick as possible. When he got there early in the morning, Ken Orchard wasn't alone. He brought Suzanne's personal doctor, Walter Washburn. Washburn met with Suzanne in her jail cell and, like that, concluded that she was mentally ill. He said she had a loss of affect, meaning she wasn't feeling anything. And he recommended she be immediately transferred to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation. And Sheriff Leslie's office helped Suzanne's lawyer make that happen. Later, at that psychiatric hospital, another doctor named Lee Roberts examined Suzanne and concluded that, at the time of the shooting, she was suffering from a schizophrenic reaction of the chronic paranoid type. Whether a mistake or intentional, the decision to send Suzanne to the psychiatric hospital that night had consequences that could not be undone. Over the next 11 months, seven doctors examined Suzanne. They didn't all agree. But none of their other diagnoses mattered in the end. Dr. Washburn, the first doctor she saw, who got her out of the jail, he's the one who mattered. And his opinion that she was mentally ill set the course for what happened next. He wasn't a psychiatrist, he wasn't a therapist, and he didn't have training. But according to a court transcript of the county prosecutor, Washburn's opinion is how she got out of the county jail. She was transferred to University of Wisconsin Hospitals, the psychiatric section. And later, the district attorney, pushed by Suzanne's lawyer, said that was the key reason why the state couldn't make a murder charge stick. Which was quite unusual. The key reason prosecutors couldn't overcome an insanity defense. And she was transferred to a psychiatric facility on that day prior to any appearance in court. The key reason they reduced the charge against a self-confessed killer from first-degree murder to manslaughter and then cut her a deal. That factor alone makes it quite difficult for the state to argue that the defendant was not suffering from mental disease at the time of the shooting when rather extreme measures such as this are implemented. That's the district attorney telling a judge that they killed their own case. The judge was not amused. He asked the assistant district attorney whether the original prosecutor, the top DA, James Bull, signed off on the decision to send Suzanne to the psych ward. Whether or not it was with his express approval, I do not know. What we do know from the police reports is that the Dane County Sheriff's Office authorized the transfer. That's the same office headed by Sheriff Leslie who, to remind you, is the same man who Suzanne called at home after the shooting, the man who set her up in his private office to make sure she got a lawyer, a man who claimed Suzanne was just an acquaintance, Suzanne, a self-confessed cop killer. One shot, one death, left a lot of lives in chaos. Vern's daughter Shannon grew up and had a family of her own. But she never let go. Neither did her cousin, Dorothy. For a decade, more, pretty much every conversation they had was about Suzanne. How to find anything out about her. Where she was. What really happened at 2 a.m. in Oregon, Wisconsin, 50 years ago now. And there's something I haven't told you about Dorothy Marsick. I mean, besides that she isn't a 17-year-old girl anymore, obviously. Dorothy is an amateur investigator, a very educated one. 
Fulbright scholar, three master's degrees, a doctorate, a playwright. She's on the faculty at Columbia University. Dorothy Marsick reopened a 40-year-old case. Dorothy put her life on hold for years. She studied piles of court transcripts and mimeographed old police reports and forensic sketches and stacks of newspaper articles about Vern and Suzanne Stordock and their families and people they knew. Dorothy talked to cops on the scene that night, the original district attorney on the case, friends of Suzanne, neighbors in Oregon, old boyfriends, every member of her own family, and experts, experts, experts. All for a good reason, to prove to herself and the world that Suzanne got away with murder. Yeah, and I even talked to Suzanne. It was February 11th, 2014, I got a call from my cousin Shannon, Vernie's daughter. She was breathless. She said, I found her. Suzanne was in Tennessee with her adult children. I knew I had to see her, confront her, learn the truth. What was the truth? Suzanne Stordock did not shoot my uncle. Next time on Manslaughter. Uh, she didn't shoot him. That was... That was that simple. I'm quite sure David did. Manslaughter is produced by Bill Franzblau, who also supervised the music. Marty Scott is the writer. Dorothy Marsick is the co-host and author of the book With One Shot. Executive producers are Bill Franzblau, Dorothy Marsick, Marty Scott, and Molly Peterson. Gregory T. Smith and the Oregon Historical Society provided research. Sarah Kalin is a forensic consultant. Shannon Stordock-Hecht is a story consultant. Actors who recreated voices include Jacob Behrens, Charlie Ray, Jeff Wisniewski, Dan Fishman, Tamara Erickson, Kirsten Rodow, Robert Smythe, Steve Travis, Gary Berg, Brady Gonsalves, Buck Scherner, and Chris Sapienza. Nick Cortides is the sound designer and engineer. Martine Cadillo provided original music scoring and engineering. Additional engineering by Sergio Enriquez at Wondery. Tony Bruno produced and arranged songs that Danielle Harris sang. For the music, special thanks to Clearcut Incorporated, John Fry and Barb Hall, Warner Chapel Music, Sony ATV Music, Spirit Music, Abco Music, Fabulous Music, Round Hill, Carlin, BMG, and all the amazing people at Wondery. I'm your host and co-writer, Molly Peterson. Love.